Story fourteen of A Mirror of Shalott by Robert Hugh Benson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story fourteen My Own Tale. I must confess that I was a little taken aback on my last evening before leaving for England when Monsignor Maxwell turned on me suddenly at supper and exclaimed aloud that I had not yet contributed a story i protested that i had none that i was a prosaic person that there was some packing to be done that my business was to write down the stories of other people that i had my living to make and could not be liberal with my slender store that it was a layman's function to sit at holy and learned priests feet not to presume to inform them on any subject under the sun but it was impossible to resist it was pointed out to me that i had listened on false pretenses if i had not intended to do my share that telling a story did not hinder my printing it and as a final argument it was declared that unless i occupied the chair that night all present withdrew the leave that had already been given to me to print their stories on my return to england there was nothing therefore to be done and as i had already considered the possibility of the request i did not occupy an unduly long time in pretending to remember what i had to say when i was seated upstairs and the fire had been poked according to the ritual and the matches had gone round and buckled shoes protruded side by side with elastic ankled boots i began this is a very unsatisfactory story i said because it has no explanation of any kind it is quite unlike mr percival's you will see that even theorizing is useless when i have come to the end it is simply a series of facts that i have to relate facts that have no significance except one that is supernatural but it is utterly out of the question even to guess at that significance it is unsatisfactory too for a second reason and that is that it is on such very hackneyed lines it is simply one more instance of that very dreary class of phenomena named haunted houses except that there is no ghost in it its only claim to interest is as i have said the complete futility of any attempt to explain it this was rather a pompous exordium i felt but i thought it best not to raise expectations too high and i was therefore deliberately dull sixteen years ago from last summer i was in brittany i had left school where i had laboured two hours a week at french for four years and gone away in order to learn it in six weeks this i accomplished very tolerably in company with five other boys and an english tutor our general adventures are not relevant but toward the end of our stay we went over one sunday from portrieux in order to see a french chateau about three miles away it was a really glorious june day hot and fresh and exhilarating and we lunched delightfully in the woods with a funny fat little french count and his wife who came with us from the hotel it was impossible to imagine less uncanny circumstances or companions after lunch we all went cheerfully to the house whose chimneys we had seen among the trees i know nothing about the dates of houses but the sort of impression i got of this house was that it was about three hundred years old yet it may equally have been four or two i did not know then and i do not know now anything about it except its name which i will not tell you 
and its owner's name which i will not tell you either and and something else that i will tell you we will call the owner if you please comte jean marie the first the house is built in two courts the right-hand court through which we entered was then used as a farmyard and i should think it probable that it is still so used this court was exceedingly untidy there was a large manure heap in the centre and the servants quarters to our right looked miserably cared for there was a cart or two with shafts turned up near the sheds that were built against the wall opposite the gate and there was a sleepy old dog with bleared eyes that looked at us crossly from his kennel door our french friend went across to the servants cottages with his moustache sticking out on either side of his face and presently came back with two girls and the keys there was no objection he exclaimed dramatically to our seeing the house the girls went before us and unlocked the iron gate that led to the second court and we went through after them now we had heard at the hotel that the family lived in paris but we were not prepared for the dreadful desolation of that inner court the living part of the house was on our left and what had once been a lawn to our right but the house was discoloured and weather-stained the green paint of the closed shutters and door was cracked and blistered and the lawn resembled a wilderness the grass was long and rank there were rose trees trailing along the edge and across the path and a sundial on the lawn reminded me strangely of a drunken man petrified in the middle of a stagger all this of course was what was to be expected in an adventure of this kind it would do for a christmas number but it was not our business to criticize and after a moment or two we followed the girls who had unlocked the front door and were waiting for us to enter one of them had gone before to open the shutters it was not a large house in spite of its name and we had soon looked through the lower rooms of it they too were what you would expect the floors were beeswaxed there were tables and chairs of a tolerable antiquity a little damask on the walls and so on but what astonished us was the fact that none of the furniture was covered up or even moved aside and the dust lay i should say half an inch thick on every horizontal surface i heard the frenchman crying on his god in an undertone as is the custom of gauls i bowed a little to father murren and finally he burst out with a question as to why the rooms were in this state the girl looked at him stolidly she was a stout red-faced girl it is by the count's orders she said and does the count not come here he asked no sir then we all went upstairs one of the girls had preceded us again and was waiting with her hand on the door to usher us in see here the room the most splendid she said and threw the door open it was certainly the room most splendid it was a great bedchamber hung with tapestry there were some excellent chairs with carved legs a fine gold-framed mirror tilted forward over the carved mantelpiece and above all and standing out from the wall opposite the window was a great four-posted bed with an elaborately carved head to it and heavy curtains hanging from the canopy but what surprised us more than anything that we had yet seen was the sight of the bed except for the dust that lay on it it might have been slept in the night before 
there were actually damask sheets upon it thrown back and two pillows all gray with dust these were not arranged but tumbled about as a bed is in the morning before it is made as i was looking at this i heard a boy cry out from the washing stand why it has had water in it he said this did not sound exceptional for a basin but we all crowded around to look and it was perfectly true there was a gray film around the interior of it and when he had disturbed it as a boy would with his finger we could see the flowered china beneath the line came two-thirds of the way up the sides of the basin it must have been partly filled with water a long while ago which gradually evaporated leaving its mark in the dust that must have collected there week after week the frenchman lost his reticence at that my sacred something he said why is the room like this the same girl who had answered him before answered him again in the same words she was standing by the mantelpiece watching us it is the count's orders she said stolidly it is by the count's orders that the bed is not made snapped the man yes sir said the girl simply well that did not content the frenchman he exhibited a couple of francs and began to question this is a story that he got out of her she told it quite simply the last time that count jean marie had come to the place it had been for his honeymoon he had come down from paris with his bride they had dined together downstairs very happily and gaily and had slept in the room in which we were at this moment a message had been sent out for the carriage early next morning and the couple had driven away with their trunks leaving the servants behind they had not returned but a message had come from paris that the house was to be closed it appeared that the servants who had been left behind had had orders that nothing was to be tidied even the bed was not to be made the rooms were to be blocked up and left as they were the frenchman had hardly been able to restrain himself as he heard this unconvincing story though his wife shook him by the shoulders at each violent gesture that he made and at the end he had put a torrent of questions were they frightened then i do not know sir i mean the bride and the groom fool i do not know sir sacred name and and why do you not know i have never seen any of them sir not seen them why you said just now yes sir but i was not born then it was thirty years ago i do not think i have ever seen people so bewildered as we all were this was entirely unexpected the frenchman's jaw dropped he licked his lips once or twice and turned away we all stood perfectly still a moment and then we went out i indulged myself with a pause just here i was enjoying myself more than i thought i should i had not told the story for some time and had forgotten what a good one it was besides it had the advantage of being perfectly true then i went on again with a pleased consciousness of faces turned to me and black-ended cigarettes i must tell you this i said i was relieved to get out of the room it is sixteen years ago now and i may have embroidered on my own sensations but my impression is that i had been just a little uncomfortable even before the girl's story i don't think that i felt that there was any presence there or anything of that kind it was rather the opposite it was the feeling of an extraordinary emptiness like a catholic cathedral in protestant hands put in a voice 
i nodded at the zealous convert making father brent it was very like that i said and had too the same kind of pathos and terror that one feels in the presence of a child's dead body it is unnaturally empty and yet significant and one does not quite know what it signifies i paused again well reverend fathers that is the first act we went back to portrier we made inquiries and got no answer all shrugged their shoulders and said that they did not know there were no tales of the bride's hair turning white in the night or of any curse or ghost or noises or lights it was just as i have told you then we went back to england and the curtain came down now generally such curtains have no resurrection i suppose we have all had fifty experiences of first acts and we do not know to this day whether the whole play is a comedy or a tragedy or even whether the play has been written at all do not be modern and allusive mr benson said monsignor oh i beg your pardon monsignor i will not i forgot myself well here is the second act there are only two and this is a much shorter one nine years later i was in paris staying in the rue picot with some americans a french friend of theirs was to be married to a man and i went to the wedding at the madeleine it was well it was like all other weddings at the madeleine no description can be adequate to the appearance of the officiating clergyman and the altar and the bridesmaids and the french gentlemen with polished boots and butterfly ties and the conversation and the gaiety and the general impression of a confectioner's shop and a milliner's and a salon and a holy church i observed the bride and bridegroom and forgot their names for the twentieth time and exchanged some remarks in the sacristy with a leader of society who looked like a dissipated priest with my eyes starting out of my head in my anxiety not to commit a solecisme or a barbarisme and then we went home again on the way home we discussed the honeymoon the pair were going down to a country house in brittany i inquired the name of it and of course it was the chateau i had visited nine years before it had been lent them by count jean marie the second the gentleman resided in england i heard in order to escape the conscription he was a connection of the bride's and was about thirty years of age well of course i was interested and made inquiries and related my adventure the americans were mildly interested too but not excited Thirty-nine years is ancient history to that energetic nation. I bowed to Father Jenks, before I remembered that he was a Canadian, and then, pretending that I had not, I went on quickly and missed a dramatic opportunity. But two days afterwards they were excited. One of the girls came into déjeuner and said that she had met the bride and bridegroom dining together in the bois they had seemed perfectly well and had saluted her politely it seemed that they had come back to paris after one night at the chateau exactly as another bride and bridegroom had done thirty-nine years before before i finish let me sum up the situation in neither case was there apparently any shocking incident and yet something had been experienced that broke up plans and sent away immediately from a charming house and country two pairs of persons who had deliberately formed the intention of living there for a while in both cases the persons in question had come back to paris 
i need hardly say that i managed to call with my friends upon the bride and bridegroom and at the risk of being impertinent asked the bride point-blank why they had changed their plans and come back to town she looked at me without a trace of horror in her eyes and smiled a little it was uh, triste she said a little triste we thought we would come away we desired crowds i paused again we desired crowds i repeated you remember reverend fathers that i had experienced a sense of loneliness even with my friends during five minutes spent in that upstairs room i can only suppose that if i had remained longer i should have experienced such a further degree of that sensation that i should have felt exactly as these two pairs of brides and bridegrooms felt and have come away immediately i might even if i had been in authority have given orders that nothing was to be touched except my own luggage i do not understand that said father brent looking puzzled nor do i altogether i answered but i think i perceive it to be a fact for all that one might feel that one was an intruder that one had meddled with something that desired to be left alone and that one had better not meddle further in any kind of way i suppose you went down there again observed monsignor maxwell i did a fortnight afterwards there was only one girl left the other was married and gone away she did not remember me it was nine years ago and she was a little redder in the face and a little more stolid the lawn had been clipped and mown but was beginning to grow rank again then i went upstairs with her the room was comparatively clean there was water in the basin and clean sheets on the bed but there was just a little film of dust lying on everything i pretended i knew nothing and asked questions and i was told exactly the same story as i had heard nine years before only this time the date was only a fortnight to go when she had finished she added it happened so once before sir before i was born do you understand it i said no sir this house is a little triste perhaps do you think so sir i said that perhaps it was then i gave her two francs and came away and that is all reverend fathers there was silence for a minute then padre bianchi made what i consider a tactless remark bah that does not terrify me he said terrify is certainly not the word remarked monsignor maxwell i am not quite sure about that ended father brent the bell rang for night prayers sum up father rector said monsignor without moving you have heard all the stories and mr benson is going to-morrow the old priest smiled as he stood up and was silent for a moment looking at us all i can only sum up like this with the sentiments with which monsignor began he said the longer i live and the more i hear and see the greater i feel my ignorance to be i heard a man say the other day that catholics were the only genuine agnostics alive and that he respected them for it they knew some things that others did not but they did not pretend to affirm or to deny that of which they had no possibility of judging is that what you meant me to say monsignor monsignor nodded meditatively i think that is a sound conclusion he said i would even go further and say that the stories that we have heard confirm me at any rate in what i said at first 
some of them if the narrators will forgive me are so utterly pointless and inexplicable when regarded from the human point of view that all they seem to prove is that there must be another of course we all believe that but most of us don't act as if we did it is like looking on at the backs of a crowd they are attending to something else not to us at all just occasionally we catch the eye of someone who turns around but that is all he drew up his feet suddenly and leaned forward then he went on in a graver voice than it was his custom to use or shall we say each of us is like a newborn child in a great house in one sense we are attended to a great deal all kinds of mysteries are performed of which we are at least partly the object and what we do know of them we do know but that is very little indeed and meanwhile there are dark corridors along which footsteps pass we catch the sound of voices and the glimmer of lights he broke off and turned to me it is understood then mr benson that if you print these stories you will add that not one of us commits himself to belief in any of them except i suppose each in his own well i will mention it i said perhaps you might say that we do not even commit ourselves to our own you can say what you like about yours of course well i will mention that too i said and i will class myself with the rest the agnostic position is certainly the soundest in all matters outside the deposit of faith we all stand then exactly where we did at the beginning certainly i do said padre bianchi we all do said a number of voices then we went to night prayers together for the last time end of story fourteen end of a mirror of shalott by robert hugh benson